0: This Parsha podcast is dedicated in loving memory and Le'ilu Nishmas, Miriam Bat Avraham, whose first yard site is this Shabbos. May her soul be elevated in heaven. Parsha's Ha'azinu is the penultimate Parsha of the Torah. It has 52 verses. The first 43 verses are the song that we were told about in last week's Parsha. And we're still amid the last day of Moshe's life, and he's sharing the final party message with the nation. Now, when we read the parsha, it's clear it doesn't have a uh, easy narrative flow. It's very poetic. It's very flowery, the song. And of course, as a result, there are multitudes of commentaries to explain even the basic meaning of the verses. For the most part, we're going to follow the teachings of Rashi, the greatest of the commentators, who has been holding our hands... And guiding us since the beginning of Genesis. By way of a general introduction, Rashi in verse 12, he tells us that the song is reflections on the past together with predictions of the future. And he says that these are words of rebuke to bring the heavens and the earth to testify And so that this song should be there as a witness that in the future they will rebel against God and they won't remember the miracles that God did to us in the beginning and they won't remember the consequences of the behavior. And therefore, we have to interpret, says Rashi, the song or at least major parts of the song both as reflections of the past and as predictions of the future. Now, it's a common trope that people say that history repeats itself, and the idea of history repeating itself is really the main subject of this Parsha. Now, we as a nation, we believe that history and what happens to humanity, what happens to the Jewish people, is a product both of our behavior and our choices, but ultimately it's a result of God's treatment of the world. And here we're told, and really that's the major theme of the book of Deuteronomy, that We have the ability to determine which variant of God's treatment is going to be dispensed to the world. Certain behaviors, certain choices are going to evoke specific responses from God. And therefore, the whole book of Deuteronomy essentially repeats this theme over and over again. Make sure that you know what you're doing. Make sure you behave in a proper way or else you will have to suffer the consequences, and thus we're focusing both on the past, the mistakes of the past, the blunders of the past, looking also towards the future and trying to remember the lessons learned of the past and not be doomed to repeat them and to suffer the consequences once again. The rabban in verse 40, he breaks down the song as follows. He says that the beginning, it talks about the kindness that the Holy One blessed is that the Almighty did to us since he took us as a nation. That's verses eight and nine. And then it talks about from verse 10 to 12, the tremendous miracles that he did to us in the wilderness when we were in a land that is desolate and a wasteland. And then it talks about what he did to us when we conquered the great and mighty nations on the east bank of the Jordan and uh, all the wealth and all the goodness and all the honor that he bequeathed to us. Yet, nonetheless, verse 15, we read how, despite the fact that God was so good to us and is so good to us, we rebelled and we sought to follow the ways of the idols. And as a result of that, we evoked godly anger until God sent us packing from the land, suffering tremendously as a result of natural occurrences that were spawned by God and other painful consequences brought about by enemies and wild beasts. And after that, God scattered us throughout the land. And at the end of the song, we read about the grand reclamation, what's going to happen in messianic times. That's the big picture. It's almost like a condensed version of all the predictions and all the prophecies that were so wide present, so rife throughout the book of Deuteronomy. So it begins, Moshe tells us, Listen, O heavens, and I will speak, and may the earth hear my words of my mouth. May my teaching drop like the rain, may my utterance flow like the dew, like storm winds upon vegetation, like raindrops upon blades of grass. So this is the third time in Deuteronomy that we've seen heaven and earth being called to bear witness to what Moshe is saying, to what the Torah is telling us. And Rashi, like we've seen before, tells us that the heaven and earth, these are good witnesses. They're around forever. They were there. The same heaven and earth was there when Moses was the Jewish people. It's still here today, and therefore they could still stand witness. They have not been removed and discarded, and therefore they could stand and provide testimony. Moreover, Rashi tells us that the heaven and earth, they can mete out The punishment, and the reward to us in the event that we choose to obey or disobey the warnings and the consequences delineated in this song. If things are good, the heaven will give its bounty, the earth will yield its produce. Alternatively, if we make the unfortunate decision to disobey the Torah and to not heed the warning of the song, then the heaven will withhold its rain, and the land, the earth, will not give its produce. Now, verse 2 describes four different kinds of rain. There's the drop, there's the dew, there's the storm winds, there's the raindrops. Rashi tells us that this in general is a reference to Torah, that the words of the Torah, just like rain provides life, provides vitality, it enables growth. It is what keeps the world running. So, too, Torah is like that for the Jewish people. It is our lifeblood. It is what ensures our continuity. It is what keeps us going. The other commentators, they add that there's four different types of rain corresponding to four different types of Torah learners. Moshe continues, When I call out the name of Hashem, ascribe greatness to God, the Talmud tells us, that from this verse we deduce that there is a mitzvah to make a blessing before we study Torah, because if you're about to call to God, you have to ascribe greatness, i.e. make a blessing, to God. And Moshe continues, The rock, perfect is his work, for all his paths are justice, a God of faith. Without iniquity, righteous and fair is he. Moshe here is praising that God is righteous in how he dispenses reward and punishment with precision. Well, she tells us that God punishes perfectly, i.e. slowly, without a tsunami of punishment. Even though God is all-powerful, even though God is omnipotent, even though God could single-handedly in an instant destroy all the sinners, that's not how he operates. He does it slowly and without the flood of punishment that would totally destroy us. He is perfect in his behavior. I think there is a deep point over here. Humans, we tend to view punishment for crimes as a way of getting revenge or as a way of minimizing bad behavior. And therefore we want to have a deterrent. So people shouldn't be sinful. People shouldn't do crimes. People should obey the law. People shouldn't be menaces on society. And therefore we'll have punishment. That's not how God operates. His punishment is not to take revenge, and it's not even to ensure, to compel good behavior. Rather, it's about nudging us, encouraging us, coaxing us, massaging us to the way of righteousness. And therefore, when he wants to punish us, when he wants to give us consequences for a bad behavior, he does it gently, does it softly, so that we will not be destroyed, so that we will take the lesson to heart to heart, and will indeed rectify, mend, refine our ways, and won't be needing any further punishment. In addition, a general theme of, of godly divine punishment is that it's always measure for measure. It's always with precision. It's always in a way that the recipient of the punishment can deduce from the very nature of the punishment itself What is the lesson that God wants to give me? And thus, as a result of that, can take the message home, rectify their ways, and solve the underlying cause for that punishment. Now, there's a very fascinating Talmud here quoted by Rashi about the final part of the verse. A God of faith without iniquity, righteous and fair is he, says the Talmud, the book of Titus, page 11a. What this means is that God rewards and punishes. Both the righteous and the wicked. Of course, the righteous is someone who does a lot of mitzvos and does maybe a few sins. And conversely, the wicked is the opposite. They do a lot of sins, but they also do a few mitzvos. Everyone's a mixed bag. Some people skew to this way. Some people skew to that way. Says the Talmud, everyone is rewarded fairly. God is fear. There's no iniquity. He's righteous. And therefore, even the Russia, even the wicked one, he does a few mitzvahs he will be justly rewarded for that. Even the righteous one, he does a few sins, he will justly be punished for his sins. There is no protexia, as they say in Hebrew. There's no way to avoid being compensated, both good and bad, for your behavior. However, there is a critical difference between how the righteous and how the wicked are rewarded and punished. The righteous are punished in this world and rewarded in al in the afterlife. Whereas the wicked, it's the opposite. They are rewarded here, and they are punished in the afterlife. That's what the Talmud says. And this is all deduced from the verse that tells us that God is fair, there's no iniquity, his ways are just. And the obvious question is, wait a minute, how indeed is that fair? The Talmud tells us, that one second, one scintilla of reward in Almaba in the afterlife outweighs all the potential reward in this world. And thus you have two people, one's righteous in general in aggregate, and the other one is wicked in general in aggregate, and both do the identical mitzvah, and both are rewarded, but the righteous is rewarded in Almaba in the afterlife, where the reward is amplified a millionfold, and for the exact same identical mitzvah, the wicked is rewarded here, where it's comparatively infinitesimally smaller to the reward for the identical mitzvah that the righteous receives in ulama, in the afterlife. How indeed is that fair? And I think there's a deep point here. The deep point is that not only is God fair that he will reward and punish everyone for their deeds, but he even lets people choose which venue of reward and punishment they prefer. You do a mitzvah, you get rewarded. God's fair. Where do you want your reward? That too is part of God's fairness. He lets you choose. You want a reward here? If you prioritize this world, if you try to optimize for this world, God says, okay, you want to be rewarded here? Sure, I'll reward you here. If you're someone who is righteous in general, by definition, that means you're someone who wants to prioritize your soul over your body, the world of the soul over the world of the body. And consequently, you're asking God that you want to be recompensed. You want to be rewarded for your mitzvah in the afterlife. And God says, okay, he is fear. He will let you choose which world that you prioritize, which world you deprioritize. In the world that you deprioritize, you'll be punished. In the world that you prioritize, you will be rewarded. A very powerful idea that we see here from Rashi and the Talmud. The verse continues, Moshe tells the Jewish people, corruption is not his, the blemish is his children's, a perverse, a twisted generation. Is it to Hashem that you do this, O vile and unwise people? He's admonishing the nation. He's telling them, who loses when we sin? And what is the nature of that loss? We lose... Not God loses. It's us who lose. And what is our loss? Our loss is that we are no longer his children. Corruption is not his. When someone sins, God doesn't lose. It's yours. It's the person's. The blemish is his children's, i.e. We have a relationship with God that can be in one way or the other. We're described as children of God. We're described as slaves of God. Says the Talmud, when we behave properly— we're uplifted to being like children of God. When we disobey God, we still have a relationship with him, but the nature of that relationship changes. Now we are slaves of God. We're servants of God. He is our master, no longer our father. And here, that's what the verse is saying. what is telling the Jewish people, you're going to blemish yourself if you sin, if you corrupt yourself, and you're going to lose, you're going to forfeit that very close relationship that you had when you were considered children of God, now you're going to be only slaves of God. And is it really fair? There's very pretty, very sharp criticism here that Moshe is levying upon the sinners. Is it to Hashem that you do this, O vile and unwise people? Is He not your father, your master? Has He not created you and firmed you? How could you reject God who has done so much good for you? Remember the days of yore. understand the years of generation after generation. Rashi tells us that there's two different interpretations as to what this verse means. Either remember how God punished the past generations, and he mentioned specifically the generation of Enosh, that the oceans flooded the generation, and alternatively, the generation of the flood, that they were swamped, that's one interpretation of what it means to Consider the generations of the past. Alternatively, what it means is, if you're not willing to dwell on the past, at least think about the future. Think about the fact that God has the ability to give you all the goodness in the world or to withhold that from you. And that should be enough of an encouragement to make sure that you don't betray God, you don't rebel against God, and you don't follow the ways of of the sinners, Ask your father and he will relate to you, your elders, and they will tell you. Again, try to remember the past. Try to see the world in a bigger picture. Don't just live in the day and the time of the zip code in which you are currently existing. Look at the past. Look at the elders. Look at the Torah. Look at the grand scope of history. Get a retrospective on the story of our nation and see how our actions and our behavior and our choices, they result in in good and terrible things happening to us. When the Supreme One gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the children of men, he set the borders of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. This is a continuation of the previous sentence. Remember what happened to the generation of the dispersal. Again, this is going back all the way to the beginning of Genesis where there's various generations of people. This is before Abraham, a people that are betraying God, disobeying God, and God's punishing them in proportion to their sinful ways. And Rashi explains that what this is telling us is that even though the people were being punished, he set the borders of the peoples according to the number of children of Israel, i.e. he didn't destroy the world because of the pending arrival of the children of Israel. This is a very astonishing statement here that the verse as explained by Rashi is, is conveying to us. The world deserved to be destroyed, everyone. Yet, God ensured that they're going to have continuity, that they're going to survive despite their sins that warrant them be destroyed, because amongst them, from amongst the existing people of that generation, there's going to be the descendants of the Jewish people. And Abraham is going to emanate, is going to descend from those people, and consequently, the whole world has continuity. In effect, what it's saying is, if not the Jewish people, the idea of humanity inhabiting the world, that would not have existed post the generation of the dispersal. Now, it says here that God set the borders of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. He explains to us that there are 70 nations, These are the 70 nations that survived the dispersal and there are 70 souls that descended with Jacob to the land of Egypt. And thus there is this parallel between the 70 souls that are there at the formation of our nation when we descended to Egypt. And that corresponds, that's opposite to the 70 nations and the 70 languages. Now in general, there is a principle, a motif in Jewish literature that the number 70 represents total completion of the physical plane. And thus, more than 70, 71, that is a supernatural existence, and that's the idea of the Sanhedrin, the 71 members, it's one more than 70, and thus it's above. The total completion possible in this world is already edging into the natural. And of course, this is a very tabalistic idea. Why exactly is the number seventy seven times 10? Why is that such a complete number? That's a separate discussion. But Rashi again tells us that there's a parallel. The world is in its completeness, 70 nations. The Jewish people, the Jewish nation, in its completeness is 70, maybe 70 plus 1. The verse continues, For Hashem's portion is his people, Jacob is the measure of his inheritance. Why did God spare humanity? Because of the Jewish people, i.e. Jacob specifically, who is the third link in the chain. Again, a very powerful idea here. Why did God keep the world going? Because the Jewish people were going to descend from them, specifically Jacob. Why Jacob? Why not Abraham? Why not Isaac? So Rashi gives us two ideas. A, Jacob has his own personal merit, he has the merit of his father Isaac, he has the merit of his grandfather, and thus he has these three links in the chain, which gives it permanence, which gives it power. In addition, Rashi tells us, Abraham, there was something corrupt, so to speak, about his lineage or his family, because he has, of course, Isaac, but he also has Ishmael. There's that other part of the family that we don't talk about. And Isaac, same thing, he's got Jacob, of course. But there's the other part of the family that is less admirable in a seventy cell. Whereas Jacob twelve sons, all of them are going to comprise the Jewish people. All of them are righteous, and thus he's the ultimate embodiment of the Jewish people. He is the one who's renamed Israel. He is the one that all of his children are going to make up the tribes of the Jewish people, and therefore he is really the 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 representation of why the Jewish people. And the world essentially had continuity. Now, in Hebrew, the way it's translated over here, it says, Jacob is the measure of his inheritance. In Hebrew, it's Yaakov chevel nachlato. The word chevel is translated here as measure, but it also means a rope. This is a major idea in Jewish philosophy that there is a certain rope that is connecting two opposite worlds. Of course, we know that we exist on the physical plane and we exist also on the spiritual plane and half of us so to speak resides on terra firma on earth like an animal and half of us resides in heaven in the spiritual realms in the cosmos with the angels and that's our soul and those two are linked by this rope so to speak We're presently, very deep point here, we're a fusion of two worlds, but at the same time, we're both over here and over there. And we are fused together with this idea of this rope and perfection. And and Torah is about creating equality between our body and our soul, but upgrading our body, making it holy, upgrading the world, making it holy, making a replica between this world and the spiritual world. Making the world hospitable for God, very profound ideas here that we see in the commentaries on these verses. Moshe continues, he discovered him in a desert land, in desolation, in a howling wilderness, he encircled them, he surrounded them, he granted him discernment, he preserved him like the pupil of his eye. so Rashi understands this to mean that we were found worthy, our nation in the desert, in the desolate. Wasteland. We were the people that said we're willing to follow God into the abyss, into the unknown, into the wasteland where there's nothing. We're going to follow God. We trust him. And God said, okay, you trust me. I'm going to surround you. He's going to envelop us. We're going to be sandwiched by holiness. We had flags on all the sides. We had the magical clouds of glory that enveloped us. We were surrounded on the bottom of the mountain, where God flipped the mountain over us like a barrel? And as an aside, the commentaries ask here, wait a minute. Why is this a good thing? When God threatens to annihilate us at the foot of the mountain, we're surrounded by the mountain, and God says, you choose a Torah or I crush you to death. It seems to be dissimilar to the other examples that Rashi brings of what it means that God surrounded us. So maybe the, the, the answer, one of the answers I saw in the commentaries, was that God is committed to us. When God at Sinai made the pact, made the covenant with the Jewish people and said, you accept the Torah, great, if not I crush you to death, what that means is that now we are forever bound and he cannot send us away. Maybe on a different level, we could say that, you know, this bond that was forged at Sinai, it wasn't just... The fact that God took the mountain and held it over us and said, if we accept the Torah, great, if not, he's going to crush us to death. It wasn't a single one-time event, but it's an ongoing relationship. Our nation was physiologically changed at Sinai. We became dependent on something that previously we were not dependent upon, namely Torah. And yes, God held the mountain over us and threatened us with death. If we don't accept the Torah, but that didn't go away. In effect, what the, the underlying message of this midrash that Rashi quotes here is, the underlying message is that the Sinai, the mountain is still being wielded above us. It's still a threat. If we abandon the Torah now, we're still on the verge of, of disappearing, of being destroyed, certainly being damaged, because at Sinai, God said, you are no longer just like an animal, just like a body, just needs physical sustenance. You are now a soul in a much more empowered way. And as a result of that, of course, you can have a greater spiritual acuity, but also you're going to have spiritual dependency. You're going to need Torah to have continuity as a nation. And that is uh, the this fusion that God's describing here. Not only did the nation survive because of the Jewish people, But there is this bonding of God of the nation. God is endowing us with insight. He loves us. He cares for us. He's committed to us. And then we read at the end of the verse, he protects us like the pupil of his eye. What does that mean? Rashi tells us, what is that? That it's the black part of the eye? That the light enters and exits through that portal. There's a deep idea here. The Jewish people are compared to the pupil of God's eye. The pupil, that small little black dot, that's where your entire perspective, your entire worldview, everything you've envision, how you interact with the world, it goes through that small portal, that small that small pupil of the eye. What this means is that the relationship That God has with this world, of course, if God ceases to have a relationship with the world, the world ceases to exist. So there's this ongoing relationship that God has with the world, and that is done through a portal, and that portal is the Jewish people. In effect, what this verse is telling us is that the Jewish people, we're the conduit through which all godly vitality is brought to the world. A very powerful idea. We are like God's pupil, so to speak. Through us does God's goodness emanate to the world. He was like an eagle arousing its nest, hovering over its young, spreading its wings and taking them, carrying them on its pinions. Rashi explains here that this is like the eagle. The way the eagle interacts with its children is a little bit different than all other birds. He waits them up gently. He hovers over them, touching them, but not completely touching them, and then carrying the young on its shoulders whereas the rest of the animals carry its young in its feet. And the reason for that is because the the eagle, it soars above all other birds, and therefore it's not worried that any bird will go higher than it and snatch its young off its back. And that's why all the other birds, they carry their young in their feet, because they don't want to have a different animal come from higher up and snatch the babies, snatch the birdlings from its, from its shoulders. Whereas the eagle, it's only concerned with the people and the things below it shooting arrows at it and therefore puts the babies on its back, on its shoulders. So that way, if someone's taking pot shots at the eagle, the eagle will absorb the arrows in its body and its children will remain protected. Similarly, God when he carried us out of Egypt it was like on the wings of eagles because he took care of us and he surrounded us and all projectiles that were sent our way were all absorbed by God and he protected us from from them. Now the commentaries here explain this this connection this comparison between the way the eagle treats its young and God that During the exile, our nation was in a state of slumber. We were sleeping and God woke us up. And he did that via his punishment of Pharaoh and Pharaoh's nation, the Egyptians. The fact that our servitude, our slavery, it ended. He hovered over us and he transported us to sinai and then to the doorstep of israel this is all trying to be a vote here trying to be brought up by this comparison to the eagle and god did this all for us alone and no pagan deity stepped forward hashem alone guided us and no other power was with him there was no power in all the pagan deities of all the, of all the gentile nations No one could wrestle, no one could contend with God. The Rambat is a different interpretation of what this means. And he resorts to a theme that he's mentioned many other times and we've spoke about in the past. That for the Jewish people, there was no o- other oversight. There's just God. God alone guided them. This is not a reference of God to the exception of the other of the other gods. Rather, it's God to the exception of any other forces, whereas every other nation, every other people, every other region has some sort of cosmic angelic force through which godly goodness is dispensed, is filtered through. But the Jewish people were not like that. It's just God, God alone, who is overseeing our people. He would make him ride on the heights of the land. He would have him eat the ripe fruits of my fields. He would suckle him with honey from a stone and oil from a flinty rock. Again, very, very dramatic, very poetic song here that is telling the Jewish people. Butter of cattle and milk of sheep with the fat of lambs, rams born in Bashan, and he goats with wheat as fat as kidneys, and he would drink blood of the grapes like delicious wine. So Rashi explains how These verses, they correspond to all the amazing bounties of the agricultural riches of the land of Israel. And it's describing, again, how things are so good for us, God's watching over us. Yet, because things are so good, at that point, we are more likely to reject God than if things were poor for us. And This is a theme that's appeared many times in the Torah, that it's not when things go bad that we're likely to abandon our faith, it's when things go excessively good, wonderfully good. And that, ironically, is the product of God intervening, making sure things are great for us. And when things are great, what do we read? Verse 15, Yeshurun, which is a name for the Jewish people, and it's actually a, a praiseworthy name. Yeshurun means upstanding. Even though we're Yeshurun, we became fat and we kicked, we rebelled, we got corpulent, and we rejected God. We deserted God, its maker. And we were contemptous of the rock of our salvation. And we provoked God's anger, God's jealousy with strangers. We angered God with abominations. We started following the ways of the idols. We would slaughter to demons without power, gods whom they did not know. Newcomers recently arrived whom your ancestors did not dread. We have everything going for us. And yet, we reject God and we start committing abominable deeds. We anger God with alien things. Rashi so explains, what does that mean? He gives examples of various abhorrent and morally decrepit things that they will do. The Raman different interpretation. He says that all the rebuke relates to idolatry, and he interprets it with other abominable acts, namely that of child sacrifice. So we're gonna deviate and follow the, follow the idols, And we're going to sacrifice to demons without power, to gods that they knew not and gods that our ancestors did not dread. You ignore the rock who gave birth to you, forgot God who brought you forth. Hashem is going to see what happened. He's going to be provoked by the anger of his sons and daughters. He will say, I shall hide my face from them. See what their end will be for they are a generation of reversals, children whose upbringing is not in them. God here is described as the one who bore us, and we're going to rebel against the God who brought us into existence, and we're going to, in the words of Rashi, weaken his power, meaning that we're going to redirect the way he is inclined to treat us. He's inclined to treat us with kindness, and by dint of our behavior, we're going to, so to speak, force God to treat us with anger. from this point forward, the Ramban points out that there's a change in tense. Up to this point, Moshe is speaking in first person, and now he's going to speak in, in third person, describing the acts of God for the rest of the song. As a result of our behavior, we're going to inspire, we're going to catalyze God to punish us from being this ungrateful people. We're going to reject the ways of God, and we're going to seize exhibiting, manifesting the training that we got, and God's going to punish us in kind. They provoke me with a non-God, they anger me with their vanities, so too I shall provoke them with a non-people, with a vile nation shall I anger them. Measure for measure, we say that we're going to reject God, we're going to discard God in exchange for a non-God. God says, okay, I'm going to discard you as a nation for a non-nation. Which nation is it referring to? Some states, the Babylonians, maybe the Crusades. Maybe it's a reference to an entity that doesn't abide by the Geneva Convention, a, like, a, like a nation or a people that's a non-nation because they don't play by the rules. And it, again, talks about the punishment that we're going to have. Fire is going to be kindled on my nostril. Blaze to the lowest depths. I shall consume the earth and its produce. Set ablaze. What is found on the mountains? There's four descriptions of fire. Commentaries tell us it corresponds to the four kingdoms that subjugated the Jewish people. And it's kind of hard to read. I shall accumulate evils against them. My arrows shall I use up against them. God's going to use his arrows. He's going to exhaust his arrows on the Jewish people. Rashi tells us a beautiful idea. There's a paradox of Jewish history. Despite the fact that God is going to exhaust all his arrows against us, We're still going to be around as a nation. We're going to suffer the most, yet improbably, against all odds, we are going to survive. But the pain and the punishment and the suffering is going to be intense. Bloating of famine, battles of flaming demons, cutting down by the noontime demon, and the teeth of the beast shall dispatch against them with the venom of those that creep on the earth. Five different punishments. Balatum explains this corresponds to the rejection of the five books of Moses. We have the five books of the Torah. We're going to reject them. God says, okay, I'm going to give you five different terrible punishments. On the outside, the sword will bereave. Indoors, there will be dread. We'll suffer inside. We'll suffer outside. And then God says, I will scatter them. I will cause their memory to cease from man. God says there is legitimate reason for us to be gotten rid of, for us to be destroyed. But why won't God do it? Were it not for the anger of the enemy who was pent up, lest his tormentors misinterpret, lest they say our hand was raised in triumph. We're going to have vengeful enemies, and they're going to be taking credit for everything that's happened to the Jewish people. They're going to say it's us, it's our gods that caused the nation of Israel to falter. And as a result of that, so that they don't take credit, an amazing thing here, because there is such a corruption, a perversion of what's going to result if we are getting destroyed, that's why we're going to survive. There's going to be a nation or nations bereft of wisdom, bereft of insight, and they don't realize that this is the hand of God operating. Had they been wise, they would indeed understand the reason, the underlying reason for Israel's suffering. And again, these are themes that really appear in every juncture of Jewish history. We're hated. We don't know why we're hated. Here we find out. What happens to us? We don't know the reason. We don't know the origin. Here we find out. And the other nations, they themselves don't know why they hate us so much. And then when they triumph over us, they think that the reasons why they hated us, that's the real reasons why they were victorious. But that's indeed not the correct one. And as a result of that, we will survive. We're going to be under the rule, the dominion of our overlords, and they won't really understand why. For not like our rock is their rock. Our god versus their lowercase g god, they're different. They're going to misinterpret it. They're going to be in charge, but not for long. And then... Verse 32, it goes back to explaining why the people are the brink of destruction. So it's, again, it's very hard to read it. Barashi pieces it for us together that our, beh- our behavior is so abominable, it's so unconscionable that we're supposed to be destroyed. We're not going to be destroyed. And it goes on to this parenthetically, this aside as to why it won't happen. And then it goes back to explaining why it ought to have happened. Why indeed were we on the brink of destruction? Because we're going to behave like the people of Sodom, the people of Gomorrah, our vineyards are the like the vineyards of Sodom, the fields of Gomorrah, their grapes are grapes of gall, clusters of bitterness were given to them. Serpents venom is their wine, the poison of cruel vipers. Again, describing terrible, terrible state of the nation of why indeed we were worthy of being destroyed, but we're not going to get destroyed. And why not? Isn't it revealed with me, sealed with my treasuries? Mine is vengeance and retribution at the time their foot will falter, for the day of their catastrophe is near, and future events are rushing at them. So verse 35, Rashi tells us that this is the end of the rebuke. Until this point, these is words of rebuke from Moshe, that they'll understand why bad things happen to them. And from now on, these are words of comfort, words of reclamation, of coming back together, and of messianic tithing verse 36 when hashem will have judges people he shall relent regarding his servants we're going to have suffering we're going to have punishment but it's going to be mixed with a little bit of mercy god's going to say where is their god the god of the idolaters lowercase g the rock in whom they sought refuge the fat of whose offering they would eat they would drink the wine of their libations now i'm going to say to jewish people Where are the gods of the foreign nations, of their enemies? Where are they? Why is their potency not present? Everyone will see. See now that I am he. There is no God with me. I put to death and I bring to life. I struck down and I will heal. And there is no rescuer from my hand. Both punishment and the reclamation, both of them show us God's unimpinged power. When things are going bad for us, not, no one could save us. We're, we have no hope besides for God. He's the one pulling the strings. When things are going good for us, when we're being saved by God, all the powers cannot do anything to stop that. For I shall raise my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever. So a little bit difficult to understand what this means. Rashi explains that it refers to an oath. That God, so to speak, raising his hands to heaven, making a promise. The Ramban, he says, very nice idea, that God is going to restore the supernatural treatment of Israel that was cast aside. At this juncture in the song, it's talking about what's going to be when the nation is going to have their vengeance against their enemies. This is going to be the product of God raising his hands, so to speak, restoring the way he used to treat us in the past. There is a method of God treating us when there's a destruction of evil and the revelation of God and that is going to be restored once again at this point in history. And the revenge is going to be intense. I shall return vengeance upon my enemies and upon those who hate me, I shall bring retribution. I shall intoxicate my arrows with blood. This is the good kind of vengeance because this is vengeance against our enemies. And my sword shall devour flesh. Because of the blood of corpse and captive, because of the earliest depredations of the enemy, O nations, sing the praise of his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants, he will bring retribution upon his foes, and he will appease his land and his people. That's the end of this song. There's a very important Ramban here where he puts the song in, in historical context. So first of all, he points out that God is describing attacking his enemies when really he's attacking the Jewish people's enemies. So why is it being described that God is attacking his enemies when it's really our enemies? So the Rabban says, a very powerful idea, he says, the reason why they hate us is because deep down they know that we are God's people. And thus their hatred towards us is by extension their hatred towards God. They present themselves as our enemies, but really they are God's enemies. And the Rabban continues and says, That this, these verses at the end of the song, they are talking about messianic times because they did not happen yet. Why? Because even though Jewish people came back to Israel and restored hegemony over the land in the second commonwealth era, during the time of the second temple, they were still subjugated to the kings of Babylon and to the kings of Greek and uh, and to the Roman Empire, etc. There wasn't a time yet, says the Ramban, where this was fully fulfilled. And then he adds another point, very powerful point, that the Messianic era and this song, it does not have a precondition of repentance. Rather, his words, this is a document of testimony that we will do all these terrible things and that God will punish us with anger, but we'll still survive and will return. And he will get Revenge on our enemies with his strong sword. And he will atone for our sins. He will expiate us from our sins for his name. Therefore, this is a, this is a, an amazing idea. This song is a promise that the future exile will happen against the will of the heretics. There's going to be heretics. So you would think that you need to fix the heresy before the messianic Prophecies can be fulfilled. Here we see no. It's going to be against the will of the heretics. There will still be heretics, and they're going to say, No, no, we're not interested. And nonetheless, this is going to be forced upon them. Even without complete national repentance, there's going to be this messianic description of God saving us from our enemies, getting revenge against the enemies, and bringing things together. And the Rabban adds that this is an all encompassing song. He quotes from the Midrash. The Midrash says that this is such a great song. It talks about the present. It talks about the past. It talks about the future. It talks about this world. It talks about Olam Haba. That's why it says in verse 44, Moses spoke all these words. What does it mean all these words? Everything. Because even though it's a very short section of the Torah, it's only a couple of dozen verses, but it covers a lot of themes. And the Rabban ends his comment, his essay by noting that this is an unparalleled prophetic prediction. He says, if this song, if this song was written by one of the stargazers, by one of the prognosticators, by one of the clairvoyant, quote-unquote, prophets of yore who would look at the stars and would be able to testify that this is going to happen, we would have to believe him because, indeed, everything happened to a T, And therefore, because the beginning of the song already happened, and we know that, it's already in the past, this is the Ramban speaking in the 13th century, so too, says the Ramban, we should believe, and we should await, and we should yearn the words of God via his trustworthy prophet, i.e. Moses, that the rest of the song will also come true. The song ends that the nation, our nation is going to be praised by our enemies, by all the nations, says Rashi. Why? Because ultimately our nation has never abandoned God entirely. Yes, of course, there's pockets of rebellion, of of heresy throughout our nation. It's happened throughout all times of, of our history. But the core of our nation stuck to God, cleaved to God, despite all the tribulations that we underwent. And therefore, we indeed as a nation are worthy of praise. Verse 44 is going to describe what happened then. Moses came, spoke all the words of the song in the ears of the people. He, together with his assistant and successor, Hosea, the son of Nun. Rashi tells us that this is the Shabbos. This is a day of two leaders. The previous leader was Moses and he's handing over the power. He's passing over the baton to Joshua. Rashi tells us that Moshe had an amplifier, a crier. Moshe would give a lecture to the whole nation you obviously have to have someone who has a booming voice who could share the message to the masses. And on this final lecture of, of Moses, he it's him, of course, and his maturgamon, his crier, and Joshua too is using this crier. Why? Because otherwise, if Joshua does not have this strengthening of, by Moses, people are going to say, well, if you were really supposed to be Moses' successor, if Moses really wanted you to be his successor, he would have allowed you to use his maturgo and his crier still in his lifetime. So to quell any questions of the legitimacy of Joshua, Moses is doing this, this process, this conveyance of the song together with him. Now it's interesting, his name is Joshua, and we know in the book of Numbers, during the episode of the spies, his name previously was Hosea, but a letter was added to turn Hosea into Yehoshua, and here, as he's about to be brought into the greatest position in the whole nation, he's once again called by the name Hoshea, the name of his youth. Rashi tells us, why is he called Hoshea? To tell you something but great about, about Joshua. He was indeed worthy of being Moses' successor. He did not let it get to his head. Even though he was given greatness, he lowered himself like he was in the beginning, despite the fact that he was being aggrandized, was being promoted, he's going to be the lead of the Jewish people? He still behaved, he still portrayed himself like the same Hosea, like the same humble youth before he was given greatness. And This is a general theme, that whenever someone is given greatness by God, to the degree of their promotion must be the degree of their humbleness, of their humility, of their lowering themselves. We mentioned in the past, we'll say it again, that when we pray the Shemot we pray the Amidah prayer, we bow four times. Two of the first blessings, two of the last blessings. Whereas a high priest, when they pray, they're of course promoted to the second highest position of leadership in the, in the Jewish people. Well, they have to bow by every one of the 18 slash 19 blessings. What about A king? The greatest leader, the number one position, with that great leadership comes a responsibility for great humility. And the halacha states, the Talmud tells us, that once he bows the first time, he doesn't unbow until the prayer is completed. The verse continues, Moses concluded speaking all these words to all of Israel. He said to them, Apply your hearts to all the words that testify against you today, with which you are to instruct your children, to be careful to perform all the words of this Torah, for it is not an empty thing for you, for it is your life, and through this matter shall you prolong your days on the land to which you cross the Jordan to possess it. There's an amazing Rashi here. What does it mean where Moshe tells the Jewish people to apply their hearts? Says Rashi, when someone wants to study Torah, you have to have total alignment. Your eyes, your ears, and your heart all have to be ready and positioned with full attention, with total concentration to absorb the words of Torah. He quotes a verse in Ezekiel, the verse in Ezekiel where God's conveying the measurements of, of the temple. To Ezekiel, he tells him, see with your eyes, hear with your ears, and place upon your heart. Again, total alignment. And we see, you know, in a building, in an edifice, where you could see with your eyes, and you can measure it, yet God says you need to have total concentration, how much more so? With words of Torah, says Rashi, what does that mean? This is like mountains balancing on strands of here. How much more so must a person be totally, fully engaged in order to study Torah properly? In the next verse where it says, it's not an empty thing for you, Rashi gives us two explanations. Number one, the words of Torah, it's not something that you're doing for free, pro bono. You should know that there is tremendous reward that is dependent upon it. It's your life. In addition, Rashi tells us that there's no empty calories in the Torah. There's no verses that don't contain meaning. Everything is totally replete and engorged with value, with insight, with meaning, with understanding. Quotes a, a verse, a verse in Chapter thirty six of of Genesis. It seems like it's an extra verse. It talks about you know who was married to who, who was whose concubine. And the Talmud elaborates how there's so much value and so much insight in that words. Now, the Talmud, the Talmud tells us, based upon this verse, where the verse tells us that the words of the Torah it's not an empty thing for you. If you find a verse in the Torah that seems empty, it seems lacking wisdom or insight then really it's revealing that the emptiness is from you. If you are full, if you are spiritually engaged, then you'll realize that there's nothing lacking in the Torah. There's nothing that doesn't have value to it. And therefore, if you find a verse that's empty, really what it's revealing is that you are empty. You need to fill yourself up to become a vessel capable of of absorbing and understanding and discovering value and insight into the Torah, the parsha ends. Hashem spoke to Moses on that very day, saying, "Go up to the mountain, in the land of Moab, across the Jordan from Jericho. See the land of Canaan. I'm going to give it to the children of Israel as an inheritance. But you're going to die on this mountain. You're going to die the way Aaron did, because you disobeyed me in the episode of the waters of strife at Kadesh when you hit the rock instead of speaking to it." From a distance you should see the land, but you're not going to enter the land that I give to the children of Israel. Rashi tells us that there's three places in the Torah where it says on that very day, meaning on the the, the middle of the day where everyone's watching. In the story of Noah, it says that on that very day, in the middle of the day, where it was bright, it was noon, Noah entered the ark. Why? Because the people of his generation, they said, Noah, you're going to build this ark and we're all going to drown? Absolutely not. You try to go into the ark, I'm going to take weapons and kill you. And God says, oh, yeah? Really? You think you're going to stop Noah? I'm going to have Noah not sneak in clandestinely in the middle of the night. In the middle of the day. The sun is out. Everyone's there. Everyone's witnessing. Let's see you try to stop Noah. Whoever wants... To rebuff my will, come give it a shot. And of course, they did Did not work out for them. Similarly, in Egypt, in the middle of the day, in the very middle of the day, God takes the Jewish people out of the land of Egypt. That's a verse from Exodus chapter 12. The Egyptians say, oh, you think you're going to escape? You've been subject to us for hundreds of years. Are you just going to escape like that? We're going to stop you. We're not going to allow you to leave. God says, really? You're not going to allow the Jewish people to live? I'm going to take him out of the day. I'm not going to sneak him out in the middle of the night. In the middle of the day, let's see if you have the strength and the power to rebuff me. Similarly over here, the Jewish people said, Moshe, you're going to take him away from us? This same man who took us out of Egypt, who split for us to sea, who gave us the manna? He gave us the water out of the rock? He gave us the Torah? We're not going to allow him to die. God says, really? I'm going to take him out in the middle of the day, Let's see if you have the ability to stop me. Very powerful idea here. The Jewish people thought that they could keep Moses alive. Most likely it's via prayer. We see there's a famous story in the Talmud where Rabbi Judah the prince was about to die and they didn't allow him to die because they were praying so intensely that he should survive. And it had to, they had to be distracted in order to allow the angel of death to come take the body of Moses. And the Jewish people said, okay, you're going to try to kill Moses? You're going to try to take Moses? We're going to stop it. And God says, okay, let's see. I'm going to take him in the middle of the day, and you do whatever you can to try to stop him from dying. It's not going to work. Rashi, in addition, tells us that Moses is going to pass like Aaron, his brother, passed. Aaron died with the highest level of death, with a seamless extraction of the soul from the body. Moses coveted that death. And indeed, he is being told here that he's going to have that same kind of death. Parenthetically, the Talmud tells us, the book of Baruchos, page 8a, that there's 903 different types of death in varying degrees of harshness. Moses and Aaron and all the righteous people, they have this highest level of death. what's called nisus Nashika, death by kissing, so to speak, where they die very seamlessly and very painlessly. And uh, thus concludes the penultimate parsha. My email address is rabbiwolby at com, and I look forward to speaking to you next week to read the final message, the blessing that Moshe is going to give the Jewish people as he's about to pass and the description of Moshe's death and the eulogy that the Torah gives for Moses.